Time travel is possible. This episode of the To Die For Daily podcast is brought to you by Clio Global. With the muse of history at its heart, Clio's mission is to recreate the past's aromas. Visit clio.global for more information. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Back by popular demand. Seriously, I'm getting tweets. Oh, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Gareth Russell, author of Do Let's Have Another Drink. Let's um, cheers to our third digital happy hour. And will you tell me what what your bevy is? Yeah, I will. Because, oh, guys. So, first of all, I'm in London staying with friends. And so uh, so for their hospitality and their liquor, um, <laughs> a big thanks to my friend, uh, Archie. He runs an Instagram account called Cocktails of Lockdown. Cannot recommend it enough. And this is his own creation or his own spin. It's called a Regal Negroni for all of us Rhaenyra Targaryen stands. And also he, he made it, he's going to, in honour of Charles III's accession. So it's a normal Negroni, but with, I think, 30 milliliters of something called the king's ginger and like oh. a grapefruit twist it's so it's so good can see i don't i mean i'm not really sure what i'm going to be saying to you by the end of this but <laughs> i know it's going to be good so yeah you can get yeah. the recipe on his instagram account but it's really delicious and that was cocktails of lockdown yeah oh go on it's really he, he the thing is it's so funny it's uh he's so he taught himself like how to be this brilliant mixologist during lockdown. Oh. And I failed to teach myself Italian. So that right. I feel I feel a bit insulted by the whole um brilliance of it. But I learned but, how to uh, eat sugar and carbs guilt-free during lockdown. Ooh, really no, that's, only that's an achievement. Yeah. <laughs> I learned how to I learned how to really um see um serving suggestions as a challenge. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's, I'm on board. Yeah. Uh, all right. So how has the reception been for the book? We are approaching very quickly uh, the yeah. United States release sold out on Amazon in the UK. Um, yeah. And are, have you, do you have any updates for me? Anything exciting develop? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been, I'm filming here in London. I was filming a, a morning show, a sort of Christmas special yesterday, which is a bit surreal. And it kind I of- know. How fun is that? That's great. It was so fun. And can I tell you, it was, um, it was, I mean, I'll say more about it closer to the time, but it was with a really wonderful company. It was so welcoming and warm and it was in the depth of the English countryside. Um, it was, I thought it was going to be something unseasonably warm October, which will, will jolt me out, jolt me out of the Christmas spirits, but it was rainy and cold and the fire was going and there was a Christmas tree. Uh, so it was, it was wonderful, but really the reception has been staggering and I feel really grateful. It's just been wonderful so far. I can't thank people here enough for who've read it and commented on it. So it's been wonderful, really wonderful. That just made me think. I, I hadn't even thought about the fact that we're going to get a, you know, a speech from King Charles III around the holidays. Yeah. I, I had not even imagined yeah. that ever in my yeah. life. The first time, the first time since, wow. the first time ever that a king's speech will be televised in British history. Wow. That's yeah, because obviously when his grandfather did it, it was still by radio. Oh, how interesting. So, yeah. Um, jumping into the book, I laughed out loud during one of um, the stories um, about Corgi's nipping butts. <laughs> and I was and also, I didn't know. So, so for context, this story is um, 
there was a nudist beach near <laughs> yeah. a spot where the Queen Mother used to go in Norfolk, which is in East England. And her security said, you know, don't go too far up the beach. It's a nudist beach. And the Queen Mother said, well, that's not embarrassing. I mean, maybe the corgis will nip their bottoms. But <laughs> years later, and this, I didn't know that, that Judy Dench was going to come out swinging against the crown. But I mentioned in the book that um, she was swimming there with Camilla, then the Duchess of Cornwall, and they'd been friends for years. And Judy Dench and Camilla uh, found out about this years later when they were at the same spot. And they disappeared and they were found talking to a, a completely uh, nude gentleman who was a headmaster, a principal of a school. They were having a wonderful chat. <laughs> I'm dying. But what you know, yeah. the actual line you used that made me laugh till I cried was because somebody said, you know, you don't want to be embarrassed by stumbling yeah. upon this new beach. And she said, embarrassing for whom I'm longing to see them. <laughs> <laughs> longing to see them. Perhaps the corgis will nip their bottoms. <laughs> so good. This is I want to be the queen mother when I'm in my 90s. That's 100%. the kind of, that's like that's the spirit I want. God but, willing. you know, I thought that that was the best story until I imagined Dame Judy and Camilla talking to somebody yeah naked. Uh, yeah, as God intended. <laughs> as God intended. <laughs> um no, I thought this was a really funny story too and I think I I feel like I've heard it before but I think I heard it from Prince William. Um you talk about Prince William going off to school and the mm. Queen Mother saying, well, if there are any great parties, keep yeah. me in the loop. And his fear that if he actually were to tell her, she would show up. Yeah, he he, he said she'll dance me under the table like she'll be more fun than I am. Oh, that's so um, funny. And she was 101. <laughs> <laughs> so she threw him this this going away party because she spent most of her a lot of her year in scotland and particularly the august um was always in scotland and prince william was about to start at st andrews university which is obviously in scotland as well so she threw him this lovely going away party but yes he was leaving she stood on the steps and said if there are any good parties let me know and he thought not a chance like she will definitely definitely outshine me <laughs> that is so sweet yeah um this is i guess less sweet but you you hear a story like that and you you think automatically those two are particularly close that that's yeah. a, a, a yeah. sweet relationship but diana was concerned that maybe mm -hmm. she favored william yeah what is your feeling on that do you really feel like she did favor william or did she give him more attention because she knew that he had you know a, he had a big job that was approaching and she wanted to make sure he had a mentor so I think it's the answer to both is probably yes. Oh, I think interest. <laughs> I think interestingly, the Queen Mother. One of the things I find out it's earlier in the book, but I talk about how she was, you know, she respected her father-in-law George V, but she felt that really by not being a very approachable figure to his children, he had left his sons totally unprepared in terms mm. of confidence to be king. Mm. So really she was determined that that was not going to happen again. So I think that she, with her grandson, Prince Charles, and then her great grandson, Prince William, who were both due to be king in time, she did try to almost counteract that by providing a lot of you know confidence building and nurturing and advice. But from Diana's perspective, I can completely understand why she was concerned that that was coming off, that the Queen Mother 
favoured William over Harry. And apparently they did have words about it. Princess Diana went to the Queen Mother and said, I, I, it's coming across that you, you prefer William. Um, and at that stage, the Queen Mother and Diana's relationship was, was pretty good. So I think the Queen Mother took it on board. She certainly, you know, she, she made provisions for them. Um, and she had a very good relationship with both of the princes when they were teenagers. So I think it probably was unintentional on the Queen Mother's part, but I think it was a fair thing to notice for Diana. There's this call from 1989 that probably haunts Diana, where you, yeah. it's kind of one of the first times we really saw her personality shine through. Yeah. Um, but she talked about how the Queen Mother looked at her in an affectionate way as if she felt sorry for her. Do you really? And then it came out a year later where the Queen Mother was not on good terms. No, no. Do you think that the Queen Mother was looking at her affectionately like she felt sorry for her? Or was that Diana about, making a mistake? Yeah. I kind of wondered if it was Diana having a Meghan Markle moment. Do you, oh, you think it was like Diana misinterpreting? Yeah, I wondered if it was it, Diana really, misinterpreting judgment. A little bit of like, I don't know what's I don't know what's up with you as yeah, there was, there was there, okay. So there is something Diana says in that phone call where I thought, "Ooh, that's a bit." Um, she says something like, "She's she keeps looking at me like she's fascinated by me." Yes. Yeah, and it sounded a bit egocentric, but I think actually when I listened to, you know, I mean, I didn't want to listen to the whole tape because I actually think the, the fact that it exists is grotesque. I mean, I right. really think it's horrible. Right. But I I went through um, the transcripts and I think Diana was. I think she just chose her words poorly okay. in that bit. I don't think it was it was megalomaniacal, but I think or egocentric. But I think, um, I think she she wanted and for a long time had the Queen Mother's approval. They had a really positive relationship. It's worth noting they came from identical, almost identical backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They were both Earl's daughters. The difference was the Queen Mother had a really happy um, childhood and Diana didn't. But they both were aristocrats and um, they both, you know, Elizabeth, the Queen, future Queen Mother, when she first married into the royal family, she was really um, a, a, the subject of intense press attention and public attention. Obviously, in the 1920s, that's different to what it looks like in the 1980s. Yeah. But she, there was a, there was a, there was a decent relationship. So I think Diana could be forgiven for thinking that um, that the Queen Mother was looking at her with sympathy. Interestingly, from what I, and I didn't want to touch on it because I think it, it's not relevant totally to the Queen Mother story I'm telling, but the Martin Bashir interview, apparently he tried to get her to say something negative about the Queen Mother and he kept asking her questions. And he said, like a pro, Diana knocked them down and wow. just said that the relationship's always been wonderful, like very um, beige, deliberately uninteresting answers because Diana knew that the queen mother was so popular that if she said anything that was going to take the focus off the story that she was telling um so i, I think diana actually deliberately made an effort to dodge martin bashir's attempts to get her to insult the queen mother in the in the interview she smart. but the, yeah, smart really smart and and the um and by that point, by the time she did the Panorama interview, the relationship between Diana and the Queen Mother was not good. They both said, and I record in the book, they said some pretty harsh things about each other. And I, I understand why both of them felt that way. The Queen Mother was really very loyal to Charles. Mm -hmm. and I mean, uh, she practically raised him, you know? Yeah, That's yeah, her baby. Um, so I understand why the Queen Mother and Diana eventually in the early 90s had a difficult relationship. But I think for most of the 1980s, it was pretty positive.
guys, you're going to lose your hallway privileges. You're going to lose them. I think being interrupted by dogs is the most queen mother thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, all four, think, all four, all four yeah, of mine, yes. Rolling around, 100%. One thing that I read in your book that I never, ever read before was that Princess Margaret burned some letters mm. that Diana had sent to the queen mother. Now, yeah. my first question is... Was the queen mother alive when she did this? I know yes. she was like, it sounded like she was spring cleaning. So she, yeah, was, no, she alive. was still alive. Yeah. And so wh why, why did she do so, that? Were they, were they, were they, you know, um, scandalous or. Probably she, she burnt all of Diana's letters to the queen mother, but she also burnt hundreds, maybe thousands of others. And so from a historian's perspective, it's horrifying. Yeah. Um, but what I, and I couldn't figure it out, but I went back and, and I've written about aristocracies before. Burning letters used to be sort of the equivalent of aristocrats wandering off like elephants to the graveyard. It's what they did. A lot of them burnt a lot of letters. So for instance, Elizabeth II's grandmother, Alexandra of Denmark, who was our queen consort from 1901 to 1910, had a completely like sort of unremarkable private life, nothing scandalous. But she burned the letters. Aristocrats did that because they felt that letters sent privately should never be. It was a breaking of a code almost wow. to have them. But um, so I think the queen, the queen mother was fully on board with Margaret doing it. And but from a historical perspective, it meant that not just a lot of sort of uninteresting letters like the ones she got from friends about you know what we the weekend they'd spent in scotland or norway or northern ireland or wherever but also that margaret threw into the into like bonfires let all the letters that um people like diana had ever written to her and i think that it caught my attention because i was always horrified in paul burrell's books he discusses diana's mother as soon as she died uh coming to Kensington Palace, collecting all of these letters, allegedly perhaps the Prince Philip letters as well, and yeah. burning all of those. And at the time I read that, I remember being horrified, like, oh, there's yeah. so much information. There's so much truth that has just been destroyed. Oh. We could, we would yeah. have so many answers. Francis came from, Diana's mother came from exactly that background where yes. that's what we did. And that will not have been, there will be no hesitation. And it's still in more elderly upper class circles. That's still what you do. And I, I, I mean, part of the thing as a historian is you just record it and say, this is what's done. But the other part of you <laughs> weeps internally. And Princess Margaret told her friend, Kenneth Rose, who was a historian, this is what I'm doing. And he, and he was horrified yeah. because he said, you know, this is one of the most, you know, the Queen Mother was one of the most important Queen consorts in British history. And it was decades worth of stuff that Margaret, Margaret burned. Oh my gosh. And I think in the book, you say that at some point someone did stop her. Is that right? Um, to, to Kenneth Rose, the historian who was her friend and one of the queen mother's ladies in waiting, Lady Prudence Penn, which is a great name. I love a good alliterative name. Uh, but Lady Prudence Penn and Kenneth Rose tried to persuade Princess Margaret to, to halt. And in fact, Princess Margaret seemed to be having a little bit of fun with them. And she said that she burned all, every letter ever. And that wasn't true. I don't think she, she, she torched them all, but it was, it, from what we can tell from, from staff members, she asked to help her. There wasn't a huge amount of rhyme or reason. It was like fist, it was drawers just being lifted and out they went. Oh my gosh. That gives I, me such anxiety. 
it, it dealt from it. I felt Kenneth Rose's um, genuine horror when it happened. And the other thing that, um, that made me laugh was um, one of the one of the staff members, the servants in the royal household, who helped Princess Margaret, said years later, "I saw Diana's signature and all like going into the like one on one of the letters." And he said, "If I had just reached out my hand when Princess Margaret wasn't looking, I could have made twenty thousand pounds a few years later." Exactly. Um, easily, easily. Um. Are there any other stories like the uh, Martin Bashir story that did not make the book? At the end of the day, you thought this just doesn't vibe with. Yeah, there were. Yeah, there were a few Kinsey. If I'm honest, like a few that just um, that were good. If I'm honest, quite a few of the stories I heard from people who'd known her or um, known someone who'd known her. There were some great stories, but um, they are actually stories. The whole book, by the way, is geared to be something that you can tell over a dinner party or over a drink. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a conversation, and anecdotal, but some of them do require you almost acting them out a little bit to be funny. So they just didn't, when they were written down, they weren't as punchy. Yeah. Uh, there was a great one that someone told me that the Queen Mother was meeting a lineup in Scotland, and at the end of the lineup was the Member of Parliament for the for the area, and just beyond him was a was a waiter with a tray with drinks. And as the Queen Mother reached the end of the line, and she sort of looked right at the um, Member of Parliament and was talking to him with eye-breaking contact, her hand went out and just picked up the drink <laughs> from this tray. Didn't know, and <laughs> just just had a, had a sip. So things like that, I suppose, didn't make it. But other ones. I, the, I mean, I, I had an embarrassment of riches because it was such a long life, really. Um, a few of them earlier on from her childhood and and a few from the First World War, I think. But generally, if it was a really good story, it, it got into the book. That's great. What a legend. Just grabbing her yeah. beverage. Yeah, good for her. Can you explain to me the House of Lords, what they're <laughs> suggesting um, be done about Prince Harry and Prince Andrew? Is this something that Prince Harry and Prince Andrew are even concerned about? Is this even on their radar? Prince Andrew will be. I don't know if Prince Harry will be. So the Councillor of State um, is a position that was really codified by a law passed in 1937 called the Regency Act that stipulated which members of the royal family should deputise for the king if or queen or reigning queen or the monarch if they are unwell or abroad. There are certain things that these councillors of state can't do. They can't summon or dismiss parliament. They can't appoint a new prime minister. They can't create new aristocratic titles. But they do all of the day-to-day constitutional work, signing um, the the constitutional documents, receiving new ambassadors, really the the day-to-day of monarchical work. And they also, by the way, they don't, um, Commonwealth matters are kept separate from the councillorship of state. The rule at the minute is that the councillor of state will be the the spouse of the sovereign and the next four people in line for the succession over the age of 21. So for Charles III, it's um, Queen Camilla, the Queen Consort. It's William, Prince of Wales, Harry, Duke of Sussex, um, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, and Princess Beatrice. And oh. in the House of Lords, which is the upper chamber of the Houses of Parliament, Lord Stansgate, who is a Labour peer, suggested that the Regency Act should be reformed to remove Prince Andrew and Prince Harry. And I have to say, Lord, in Lord Stansgate's um, defence, he was very clear that the reasons for removing Andrew and Harry are very different. Uh, one, it has disgraced himself out of public life, and the other lives abroad. 
And essentially, because the councillor of state positions require you to step in, potentially quite last minute, and to be in Britain for it, his argument is it would be better if the rules were changed a bit so that the councillors of state were were royals in public life and also royals resident in Britain. So, so who would replace them? So that's up, that's up for debate, obviously. And I should say Buckingham Palace and the Royal Household have not responded to this yet. It might not go through. Mm. Um, so how, how, how would that go through? Does Buckingham Palace have to agree to that? They would have to be on board to say, yes, we're okay with that. Because, uh, sorry, I should say also, it did get, uh, it was seconded. Lord Abington, who's a peer for the Liberal Democrats, uh, seconded it. So I think it will be addressed at some point by Buckingham Palace. It might go nowhere. They could quite credibly make the argument that you don't really need to demote Prince Harry because at the moment... Queen Camilla, the Queen Consort, and William, Prince of Wales, can do it. There, you know, it's it's unlikely that it would it would fall to Prince Harry, but potentially you could make the argument that if it did, and it's a constitutional duty, it it's potentially unfair to ask Prince Harry to move back. You know, leave potentially relocate for the sake of this. If there's someone else who can do it. Also very important to note, and I think Lord Stansgate would probably want this stated very firmly, he was very clear the reasons for removing Prince Harry and Prince Andrew are very, very different. Mm. I know I absolutely agree that the two of them should not be lumped together, and they often very unfairly are. Lord Stansgate's point is that that there are two, for very different reasons, who who should not or could not fulfil the duties of a councillor of state, if the law was changed, uh, to answer your, if the law was changed, I would say it is possible that they could change the rules so that the spouse of the heir to the throne could potentially be a councillor of state, in which point we will see Catherine, Princess of Wales. More likely, they are going to relax it so that, or change it, sorry, so that the king's two siblings, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, and Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex, uh, and Forfar, will take over that position which i think would prove pretty popular in britain i know princess anne and prince edward aren't as well known abroad as some of the other royals but really their their charity work here is is indefatigable and both of them particularly princess anne are are very popular absolutely i want to talk to you about your collaboration with clio global now yeah. is this, this is a candle company that they create candles that are that are supposed to you light it and you're supposed to close your eyes and you are somewhere else right so this is really i was a bit of a fan before they contacted me so i i tried to play it very cool when they're oh, like oh classic, would you like to collaborate and I, was like, I was like sure whatever um so they um cleo global make a series of candles that are immaculately researched. I mean, really, you get notes with each candle about the research that's gone into them. And it, by the way, they're beautifully presented. They have like wax seals and it's gorgeous. It's a really, it's for historians, um, for a history lover, it's the dream experience. But they create candles that capture the best of the sense of particular historical moments. I loved She is Pharaoh, which captures with the frankincense and the, the richness of ancient Egypt in the time of Hatshepsut. But they reached out to me and asked, would I like to do one that captured something to do with the Queen Mother and the Royal Family for my book, Do Let's Have Another Drink? And we came up with one called Bose Lion. And we went through sort of 13 different samples and really just, it was was such an experience. 
And the candle evokes the smell of a drawing room at the Queen Mother's home in the 1920s. So it's got like vanilla and black tea. It's a really beautiful candle. So I think um, by the time this airs, it's on sale. And it is a really, it's just gorgeous. And we used um, two of the Queen Mother's favorite colors, like a silver and an Oxford blue. And the smell, I, I um, lit it at parties and didn't tell people what it was because then you know people will tell you they love it. Right. Um, but, but people commented with such a lovely smell. So for history fans and candle fans, and I am both, it's, it's a dream, the Bose Lion with uh, Cleo Global. Candles. That's brilliant. And what a, what a brilliant uh, collaboration, the two of you together. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Well, the thing is also, I mean, I just sometimes when when they sort of explain their mission about creating these scents, and by the way, there's things like Shakespeare and Eleanor of Aquitaine and Shooters and Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, there's, there's a gorgeous range there. But you think, why has no one else thought of this, of, of creating smells that sort of like are an olfactive experience that bring the past to life? So it's really, I mean, it's it, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. <laughs> um, do you think that the Queen Mother would have loved your book? I don't think she loved, um, she was always nervous about royal biographies, if I'm honest. That's one thing I discovered. But I hope she would have seen that it's entertaining. And, uh, you know, obviously it touches on times in her life that were difficult for her. I think her feud with Wallace, her husband's speech impediment, probably not pleasant things to to relive. But I hope with her sense of humour, she would have liked that that came front and centre. And that that's what I was telling the story of. And also... Early in the book, I really tried to give her brothers their due space because she felt that the generation of the First World War was overlooked a lot. So I, I hope she would have liked it. Um, and certainly it was written with a view to entertain and inform. And those are two things that she she very much agreed with. She, she saw, the as King Charles said of her in his tribute to her when she died, she always saw the fun side of things in life. Yeah, no. I definitely, when I closed the book, I thought, I just wish she could have see, like felt this, seen this, read this, because I oh. truly thought, oh my God, she'd get such a kick out of this. Really? I mean, I hope the book is fun. That's what I hope the most. Do you think that we'll see any nods to her in King Charles's coronation? I, I mean, she he sat with her the whole way through. He sat with her, at, sorry, not the whole way through. He sat with her at Elizabeth II's coronation, and he wasn't there for the full because it was so long yeah. but she explained all of it to him you can see photographs of her explaining to him what was happening at his mother's coronation so whether we see conscious nods or not you know charles iii first learned about coronations from the queen mother so i think her spirit will absolutely be there in 2023 i think charles iii's uh stamina and charles iii's accession really are the great tributes to the queen mother and certainly this is a man who, you know, one of his favorite homes is the, is his late grandmother's home, the Castle of May. Charles III is a man who adores and really respects the the um, the legacy of his grandmother. So that absolutely will be at the core of of the future reign. I think sometimes, I mean, I said years ago, I think that that Catherine has has read biographies of the Queen Mother. I really do think that Kate is someone who is modeling a certain style of royal service and the Queen Mother, which is that it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you see, you can build up and it's all about being able to keep going. So I, I think the Queen Mother's spirit still, the, I think the best of the Queen Mother's spirit still lives at the heart of the monarchy. Mm. What a beautiful way to end 
until Thank next you. week and we have another yeah. date Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield Please subscribe to hear more from your favourite royal commentators Cheers <laughs>